podcast. All right, a fascinating piece which you can read in the Globe and Mail online and in print by a political economist named John Rapley takes a look at how Western, uh, well, actually, no, on two tiers of how rich countries and poor countries handle crises, both economic and COVID, for example, and with some surprising results that I'll let him tell you about. John Rapley, it's nice to have you. Good morning. Morning. Okay, so effectively, you look through the lens of COVID, for example, and discover that Western countries did not do quite as well as poorer countries, because I guess there's a degree of ingenuity when you don't have any money to fight a health crisis. Well, particularly a health crisis, which involves a zoonotic pandemic, which requires really primary uh, care and public health measures to be most effective. And that's something... And particularly in Africa, there's a lot of experience with these kind of zoonotic epidemics. And so they were very quick out of the blocks and managed them relatively effectively. Uh, Western countries were a bit more complacent because of the fact that they had, you know, very good healthcare systems. I remember Boris Johnson, the British prime minister, kept saying, don't worry, we have the world's best scientists. We've got this uh, when, in fact, it turned out that they simply, you know, the scientists were doing amazing work, but they simply couldn't do it overnight. And your argument when it comes to economic downturns, for example, and the habit that we have now in sort of Keynesian fashion of trying to buy our way out of trouble, um, that we are spending more and more and more. So effectively, we're almost becoming lazy by spending money to prevent us from losing money. Well, I think it's also that we're, that, you know, as we become richer, we're less willing and less able, perhaps, to lose money. I mean, if you compare... For example, you take the 1929 crash in Western economies. Um, that led in the United States, for example, to loss of 90% of value in the stock market. But what that meant is that when the dust settled, uh, those who were still standing were the most dynamic firms. And so they were able to pick assets pretty cheaply and new businesses came into being fairly quickly. And so when economic growth resumed, it was very rapid. Today, whenever there's a crash of any sort, uh, governments and central banks step in to prevent asset prices falling, when in fact it would probably be good for the economy if asset prices did fall. I mean, if you just use the example in Canada of, of you know house prices, uh, that's a deadweight cost in the economy. That's definitely not good for economic growth. But, you know, try and find a politician and say, well, what we really need is a crash to reinvigorate the economy. Okay, so in the poorer countries, for example, is it a bit like a forest fire? which ultimately leads to a better forest. Right. I mean, that's a very good example because, in fact, the reduction in the number of forest fires because of better forest management um, has led to more intense fires, you know, these sort of massive super fires we get now because you don't have that natural sort of uh, culling that takes place, which creates natural fire breaks and also sort of gets rid of some of the uh, the deadwood, if you will, or the, the the more decrepit trees and allows the new ones to grow. So that's a really good analogy. And are you making any prescriptions for the richer nations in all of this? Should they be less um, activist in trying to stave off uh, crises? Well, that's a very good question, and I don't yet have the answer to that. I'm working with some colleagues, and it's a research company I have, uh, and we're trying to actually work this out. What we've found is that so far in our research, there seems to be a sweet spot in the middle of the income distribution. In other words, being poor isn't good, but being rich has its drawbacks as well. And it's actually being sort of a middle income country, you have the dynamism. The real problem here, John, is that when you have uh, a country like 
Canada, like US, like Britain, especially, uh, is an example of this problem. You could say, well, we're rich, you know, we don't have to grow anymore. Let us just enjoy the wealth. The problem is that it tends to limit, you know, an economy which isn't dynamic limits the upward mobility of employed workers. And what we're seeing is less social class mobility. So, whereas, you know, 50 years ago, someone entering the job force after graduating from college or university could look forward to sort of moving up the ladder and sort of to a brighter future. Today, of course, particularly among young people, very often because so much of their money is spent sort of supporting asset values by in the rent they pay or the house prices they have to pay, that they have less income left over to enable them to sort of rise that ladder. That seems to be the problem. There's less new business formation. There's less innovation taking place. There's less productivity growth. And so it's kind of becoming expensive to be rich. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure thing. Good to have you, sir. John Rapley, political economist at the University of Cambridge, as mentioned, his column titled In Defense of Being Poor, Are Western Countries Too Rich for Their Own Good? appears in the Globe and Mail. It's 555.